The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. called The Warning. Now, um, the first line of this uh, I did hear a child say on a documentary. The Warning. The trees will all lie down, said a child. Can you imagine? See that stream where the purity grabs you by the ankles. You walk in. The air by the stream is, and you're breathing of it, enough. More than that, it battles your blood, thirsty for conquest, competing for natural joy. Will you breathe it so easily when trees lie down? And the stream, is it running still? Are the ferns yet dipping to its course, its pellucid waters dabbling in stones? Are the hills visible? Do they shimmer too much, retreating under foreign mists, no longer sketching a brown horizon for us? Or are they flattening to earth, coeval with the trees? Does the stream run? Come now with me, we'll follow the track, and at last, holding the hand of a child, and forsaking all else, find out. Uh, And that poem is from a new chapbook called The Tipping Point, and the poem is The Warning, and it's by the poetry of Linda Stevenson. Good morning and welcome to Spoken Word. Today on the program we have poet Linda Stevenson who recently released the book The Tipping Point. As a first reading, a poem that I just wrote the uh, day before yesterday so that we sort of come right up to... Sure, yeah. yeah. Is that okay? I'm not a very published poet but what I do these days is I have quite a bit of fun with uh, Facebook and online poetry groups Personally, I really like the immediacy of that and the interaction with other people. So this poem came out of a snippet of that, exchanged with someone I only know as a Facebook friend. We were talking about how and when poems can come to you. I said something about, oh, I wrote this one at the bus stop. (laughs) And this person answered me and, and said, yeah, and what about like about one microsecond before sleep falls. So I wrote a poem out of that and I contacted him to ask him, was that fine for me to use that line? And I think that sort of interaction, I really like it. About one microsecond before sleep falls. A poet answers me thus, speaking of grasping tulips, phrases, in those gravis divided moments. And I would add a full blousing moon if you yank your window blinds up, venting into darkness, slipping in and out of the spotlight, offering flowers in sacrifice. He didn't actually include tulips, my poet friend. I wrote them in, thinking of the red and orange ones they brought me, my guests. Imagining Sylvia in hospital, writing of tulips, her clipped accent Muted by white paper, white nurses. See how things connect? See how our minds are not so separate. 
See how half-acknowledged truths prickle us, even at bus stops, when the waiting becomes an ode, a cry transposed to scribble, a volume of old sighs, a valediction. So just on that um, idea um, of um, what prompts you, Personally, I find that there's uh, enough prompts in everyday life to, uh, well, there's probably a thousand poems a day. And you, s- and, uh, and you also sound like one of the many people who we see on public transport that carries a, a pen and a notepad and, and, well, always. and, and writes always. While, while they're journeying. Yeah. <laughs> always. Um, what do you enjoy about that? Um, the immediacy. It gives you, um, it's raw material. Now, that raw material might go in the bin <laughs> um, or it, it might be just a short piece that's pretty good as it is uh, and you think, yep, it's a keeper, I'll pop it in the file. And the uh, e- energy of like writing in a public place, you know, with people all around you, what, what do you like um, about that? Doesn't, doesn't, uh, it doesn't. There's nothing negative about it for me. Um, there are times when you want to work what I call the crafting phase, where perhaps you might, I might seek a bit more quietness, um, usually in bed. <laughs> so, um, so trams are good for first drafts and scribbles and Yeah, and oh, home. stop. Now that at my age I have to be careful I don't sort of leave my handbag behind while I'm doing that, so... <laughs> Probably that's not such a great idea for actually writing. I find if it's just a few keywords, you can keep them mentally, and then it's grabbing the pen in the kitchen when you get home and editing if you if you want, getting getting it tighter, making sure it's clear for other people. Well, well here's another one from um, the current era, autobiographical. I find you write less autobiography as you age, which is a good thing. One of the things I really like to do now is find ways of speaking directly to my listener or my reader, almost conversationally, and I think this is an example of that. It's called She Says. She says that'll be enough of that for now, the hurting. I've let it have full sway for as long as it might need, pressing heavy to the plexus niggling, contriving to not pass away. I'd like some plain song now. Sweetness, marzipan. Perhaps to recall a scene seven centuries old, peeling of bells, bread, a startling strip of crimson. Come out to be under the sky, feel delicate rearrangements of dusk, nighttime. Attend. Still the cords pull tight and hard in my shoulders. The perennial ache persists. So listen, I know that none of this inheritance is in my gift. I have nil right of surrender. I understand the imperative of no easy forgiving, the impedimenta of having existed. Only now the sheltering dark, the hum of a small plane seeking to land safely, Scratchings and bumps of nocturnals on a low, flat roof. And then sometimes, um, over the years, I've written quite short pieces. Um, 
and I don't give them any particular, you know, name, name of a form. Now, here's one that's about 25 years old, I found, and it, it is also autobiographical, and but it's short and compacted and hopefully succinct, and I still like it. Rivers ran in her gutters. She walked on water. Her shoes leaked. She came down with pneumonia. He promised her oranges. She got better anyway. Thank and you. And then I'm going to go back even even further, if that's all right. Sure. Peter, because this yeah. is one of the gracious things about reaching a certain age. You have some history. Um, so this one... I. Just done the maths, and it actually goes back 50 years, which is pretty terrifying. Just going to do a little revision there. The poem's not 50 years old. The poem is quite recent. It's talking about um, a circumstance, 50 years. On reading yet more biography of Sylvia Plath, to her. I, too, lived on Primrose Hill, heard, as you did, its constant dripping walked on its overflow of blind wetness, suffered its damp cold. You were already absent, gone three years before I came and found my bedsit near the zoo, surprised that day by seriously hot London weather, wrapped in my brown Australian overcoat, naive, burdened, a prospect for the rest of English summer. Later in winter, I may have phoned from the same red booth you ran to, the sight of your last silent beseechings, listening as my coins fell, clanking in the dark, with no warm answering. My intuition then may have eavesdropped on your unmouthed lines and questions, seen them, though invisible to ordinary suffering, written there on the dumb, scratched laminate. You're a painter by background, so I'm wondering mm. also, does that imagery come natural to you? As, as I wasn't a painter in terms of background because I only really started that quite late in life as well. I do find big parallels, that dual process of, I won't call it inspiration, the first go, the raw material, and that's how I work with painting, um, not really planning, letting it happen. Um, so... You know, getting some lines, some feeling, some colours, some shape onto a canvas is a little bit in parallel with what we were saying before, the, the rawness of words that, that sort of come to you that you don't want to lose and you might make something of. Then the same thing happens with the painting, the standing back and letting it talk to you. So I think I do that with both the painting and the poetry. Um, and then actually the hard bit starts <laughs> as the crafting, um, as I <clears throat> choose to call it, 
um, which might, uh, similarly to words with, with, with paint, um, getting rid of a lot, finding the essence of it, finding the story, making it work and making it work so it will be enjoyed, understood by other people as well as yourself. So that's, that's the main similarity for me. The painting is physically harder because I work quite large so I need a certain amount of uh, a greater physical energy to actually have a painting day compared with, say, having a working on poetry day where I can actually, you know, put my feet up and get the cup of tea like old ladies are meant to do. <laughs> and, and writing in, in free verse where you're working with each line and each line on the page working poetically by itself has, has also been a complete part of a, an overall poem. Do you... Do you look at the the line, like the power of the line and how it balances with the poem almost like you can oh, do absolutely. sometimes with the, the power of a, of a line on, on a canvas? Or? Absolutely. That's what you're looking for, unity. Mm. And, and I think that's what um, comes with more maturity too, the, the ability to, to throw stuff out without mm. getting weepy-eyed about it. Because it's not, it's not working as part of the whole. Or... That's it, sacrificing. And sometimes, especially with paint, like it can be, oh, well, no, with words too. It can be very pretty, you know, it can be a really nice phrase that you were really proud of. But you come back three days later and you go, no, well, that's messing up the whole in some way. And that crafting, that editing, as you said, it's a bit more physically involved with painting because you've got to paint over it. If they were sort of miniature watercolours or something, it'd be much more similar. But seeing mine are quite big acrylic canvases, uh, yes, a little bit more preparation. With poetry, you can just do an edit with a mouse. Absolutely. (laughs) And um, also some of my poetry... Uh, has what you might call like a fair amount of social content um, issues that uh, concern me and uh, sometimes that I feel very strongly about, even quite angry about. This poem isn't really an angry one. I've got a couple coming up for you of those. Um, But uh, this is just one of those sort of domestic moments that, and then you think and it morphs into something else. I think it's quite self-explanatory. It's called New Sheet. I bought queen size to tuck in well under the sides and end of my double bed. 360 weave, dearer but better. This largesse I can afford the extra sheen quality. I smooth its creases, throw it over. My silly cat hides and plays under cover as cats do. The hem is good to touch, has a firm stitch. I wonder, who pressed it flat? By whose hand was the white cotton thread sent bobbing? In what factory did my semi-slave breathe, labour? Was it here, a sweatshop in our own suburbs? Or a distant forced camp? What lamps burned through hard-pressed nights of work? The sheet's material is light, a white cotton, beckons rest for me. Except I still think over it. Who died, sewed, folded, packed? Who went to their bed, dog-tired with blood-sore fingers? Who limped home with a pittance for payment? 
Thank mm. you. <laughs> Would you like to read another poem? Oh, well, I can go on forever, Peter. But <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes a poem will almost write itself entirely. It happens to me. I'm sure it does to, to other poets as well. And then we have to decide afterwards what it means. The poem is called All Pass. There's looming. It's pewter, weighted, dense. There's new. It smells of bronzing metal, burning air. And then there's the last blue door, scraping shut against stonework. The last of the sweet cold hail, gathering in gutters. Suffer it longer. Scream like Argent into the gale. Or pass quietly, sheltering as best you can under the sodden split eaves. It's beautiful. Well, thank you very much. I, I think now in retrospect, it probably does come within the umbrella of sort of environmentally commenting poems. But it wrote itself. <laughs> You might be interested, uh, listeners might be interested, if we go back to 1982, a book was printed uh, inside Pentridge, and that was, uh, it was called Blood from Stone. Pentridge Prison. Mm. Mm, yeah, and uh, which is now something else, isn't it? Eh? <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's the actual Coburg building. Now, that uh, came out of a group of members um of the Poets' Union, of the Melbourne Poets' Union, as then, uh, volunteering to go in and do poetry workshop uh, with um, with prisoners. Um, and the poems in this book that came out of it were, were chosen um, to be in it uh, by the prisoners themselves in, in that program. And um, I was very grateful that they chose a couple of mine one of them is quite short. It's called Coburg. We burst out of jail too quickly, racing past the Columbines. No waiting this end. We take nothing worth a search. Are suddenly exposed to a different sunlight, tram stops and other friends, and the recollection that this suburb is unknown. Um... I found that experience uh, of workshopping there one of the most sort of um, energising, inspirational and energising in poetry that I've had in my life. Um, uh, the expectations of, of those men, uh, um, it was a men's group, group of prisoners, um, the eagerness, the keenness with which they awa awaited um, our, our return um, for a session, and the work that they had done um, during the intervening fortnight, whatever it was, um, was was just really inspirational, and you, I got a lot of energy sort of from it. I owed them rather than the other way around. So. The, the prisoners used to contribute a lot to the Coburg community in those days too, where they had 
for example, every Christmas they, they'd work for many months making wooden toys. Oh, yes. And they used mm. to bring the, the children in the community connected with legacy and, and war widows in yes. um, to give the children toys inside the prison mm. on the grass mm. while the, the mm. prisoners would watch from behind the fence and see the children playing That's good to hear. with these toys yeah. they'd spent months yeah. on making. And, yeah. and you're doing the same thing with their poems, getting their, their poems out as a gift. And, yes, yeah. yes. And giving out of that group, I think I'm right in saying um, an adult literacy group formed yeah. Uh, because through the writing, of, a couple of them came to realise that, you know, they yeah. had um, issues that um, they hadn't, they wanted more sort of education in the, in that area and formed that group themselves. So, Which yeah. has continued to be a, a huge part of um, That's fantastic. prisoner education fantastic. now to be able yeah. to yeah. gain literacy and, and express yeah. themselves and yeah. through creative writing as well. That's Great. fantastic, yeah. But, You've got a, a new book out, and we're getting yeah. towards the yes. end of the okay. program. So well, I'd love is. to hear some poems from. from well, that it's a book. chapbook yeah. uh, published by um, uh, Blank Rune Press, um, uh, Valley Pools um, uh, Public um, uh, Press, uh, and um, I think most people know about chapbooks. I particularly like the idea of the um, uh, sort of non-commercial and um, Again, the immediacy and a short collection. So um, this is a collection uh, on a theme, and the theme is eco-poetry as has come to be a term or just plain old environmental environmental theme. Um, and uh, we had the formal launch at one of my Frankston salons recently, um, and people seem to uh, enjoy it, as they usually do down there. Um, so... Now, I mentioned before that a couple of my poems are perhaps a little bit more angry, so we might have got to that point now. One of the poems in The Tipping Point is called Hard Words and Vicious Insights. Now, that's a quote from Bob Dylan, um, and it came from something where he was speaking of seeing into the truth of things. So I write, I'm sure he won't mind that I kidnap his phrase. Offer it. It's the vicious that I'm most drawn to. Bland won't work for us now. The battle's on. Declared, though surreptitiously. Have we seen the actual truth, its evidence? Armageddon, its armouring, the schematic of its slaughter plans, smelt its stench? We cower beneath comfort, expecting all nice civilised people will escape. Ha-ha! The black bullets of ignorance have struck already. The skin of our brains is scorched, burning. We are numb, dumb, deafened. Too many soft words in our ears. We turn like old Romans to peripherals and the easy phrase. High-placed corruption flourishes as we dream. Metaphor may well have had its day. Bring on the hard, clear words we need to waken. Another one, Peter, in um, the same sort of vein from The Tipping Point is called First and Last. I can't tell you. I can't tell you in words, yet I am telling you. Words are finite, concrete, finished in the mouth. 
explicit on the page. Words have first and last letters in any language. You can't take them back. They don't unhappen. The first and last paling in a fence. You climb it in the middle. Something black and fetid crawls away in the lane because you looked. The first and last house in a bombed street. A drone's fanatical strike. Took out this one, not its neighbour. I should have knocked, said words to warn of random killing. I can't knock on these doors, climb these fences, only point up and over, gesturing like with words. I'm pointing up and over the speaking, writing of them, pointing to the open vowels of screaming, skies spilling horror, pictures. I can't tell you about it in words, yet I am telling you, only point, almost dumb, using signs. You're listening to the poetry of Linda Stevenson on 3CR Community Radio, Spoken Word. One more from The Tipping Point. How could you not know? How could you not know about prisons when we've met behind the bars of several, brought books in and denied that mere walls should enslave us? Dear, I saw the covering over your head, the stain of inherited guilt seeping through the cloth. Love, I once saw the light falling flat on your shoulders, your eyes weeping against the glare. Friend, I heard how you dropped to the post office steps, dying right on them. A heart attack. No one helped. Our elder author, lady with the lilt, still when she reads, she says poetry will save the world. I have my doubts. But hope, as you hope also. So how can you not see that the pettiness of blind ego drags us to a page of broken prose, tramples the beautiful words into bitterness? Come, be a safeguard now. Frisk me, making sure I carry no arms. Sit with me here, and we shall write lines so diaphanous and proud they'll hold the very air in place. Uh, this last one, Peter, um, maybe it will um, be good for sharing with people why I write poems. I think I'll go to it again. I think I'll go to it now again, the astuteness, the vagary of a once more poem in the night time of no sleep. We'll rest one from the dimness an augury a prescience in its silver handcuffs as taut as strung gut as blithe as if there were no suffering but it is all suffering the poem knows that and bows to it and sachets in anyway in spite of all the blustering evidence of mayhem the poem puts things in their place that's why i go to it again and yet Again, Linda Stevenson, thank you for coming on to Spoken Word. And with the podcast, we'll put details where people can find your blog and where they can buy the the chat book. It will be available at Collected Works Bookshop. Uh, yes, uh, it is there or will be there. I think they've asked for yeah. some more. So, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you yeah. very, very much. Yeah. 